You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. So excited for this week's episode. I know you guys are going to love it. But before we get started, I want to remind you to hit those reviews on iTunes hard. The more ratings and reviews we get, the easier it is for people to find us. You don't have to leave much. Just hit that five stars if you like what you hear and that's all you need to do. Or leave five stars and write a review and leave us some feedback. We love hearing from you, good, bad, or indifferent. We always want to hear what you guys think of the show. So again, get that rating and review on iTunes. Give us five stars if you love the show. Also, YouTube subscriptions, they are up, but we want to keep them growing. We now have a custom URL for our YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com backslash C as in Charlie backslash hazardgroundpodcast.com and access and subscribe to our YouTube channel. This has been really big for us. We're getting a lot of hits on YouTube and really growing the audience that way. So again, youtube.com backslash C backslash hazardgroundpodcast is the link for you to find us. Also, our Amazon promotion continuing. You're able to give back to veterans and support them just by doing your normal Amazon shopping when you go through the link on our website, hazardround.com. And oh, by the way, if you're a mobile user, you can go to our website on your smartphone or on your iPad or whatever sort of tablet you're using, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button. It will take you right to the app for Amazon. That way, you don't have to go back to the website and put in all your information for your credit card and everything else. So again, hazardground.com, click on that Amazon button, and you guys can support veterans every time you do your Amazon shopping. Again, we are hoping and praying that everybody is staying safe and staying healthy. So much going on in the world, and we continue to ask that veterans and service members lead the way and set the example in continuing this challenge, this call, this struggle that America is dealing with right now. Let's be that unifying force that we all know that the military is. It's one of the most diverse organizations in the world, and we are certainly proud of that. And it's the people who help grow that diversity. It's people like you and me who serve alongside people of all different races, colors, creeds, sexual orientations, religions, whatever it may be. And that is what makes our military the strongest in the world. So be leaders in that fight as well. Speaking of fighting, an amazing guest coming up right now. And joining us this week on the Hazard Ground Podcast, a very special guest whose story you may be familiar with. He is a retired U.S. Army Spec 4 who served in Vietnam, where he was awarded the Bronze Star and a Purple Heart for his actions and injuries in August of 1969 in Hype Duck. Prior to his service, however, he was best known for being a football player, winning a national championship at Notre Dame, and then eventually, after his military career, went on to the NFL to win four Super Bowls with the Pittsburgh Steelers. There are two books out there about his story. One of them, called Fighting Back, chronicles his entire journey, and it is an amazing one. He is Rocky Blyer joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Rocky, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you, Mark, uh, uh, and thanks for what you're doing. You know, I've always felt that, you know, stories are, are, are so very important because a lot of veterans uh, don't necessarily 
tell their stories or 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 or, or discuss them, especially um, Vietnam veterans uh, specifically. You know, I run into, and I'm sure you have in the past. I've run into a lot of memory. Yeah, Dad never talked about it. My grandfather never talked about it. My you know, uncles never. They never talked about that experience. And um, and I'm I, and it's somewhat of a shame because I think that it's a uh, uh, those stories need to be told about what you do and, and how you served your country. Um, and uh, so you're doing a, a wonderful job of being able to bring those uh, stories to the forefront. So thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, and that's part of why we do it. We, we went into this whole thing, you know, just saying that not everybody's going to have the ability to have their story made into a book or a movie, but that doesn't mean that story doesn't hold any less importance. And sort of while chronicling history is a sense of what we're doing, but it's just great that there are stories out there that people haven't heard that they need to hear. And yours is a, a very popular story, but we wanted to sort of dive into, uh, you know, the Vietnam portion of your life as well as, you know, y- your post-Vietnam career, because obviously that is where everybody uh, mostly knows you from. But kind of go back to the beginning. I know you were at Notre Dame and you graduated and got drafted, but sort of take me through the childhood up to Notre Dame. Is that always where you wanted to go? Oh no, that's a, you know those. I didn't know where I wanted to go. I mean, as as uh, you know, none of my 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 folks did, didn't go to college. Uh, you know, I graduated from high school and then went into the workforce, uh, and then ultimately opened uh, after mom and, and dad got married. Uh, dad opened up a bar, and that became our lives for um, all that period of time growing up uh, in Appleton, Wisconsin. Was a place where we lived. Uh, we lived above the bar and. Um, and that was uh, the daily work. So, um, you know, so so as I say, we weren't necessarily Notre Dame fans. And I always like to tell the story. I mean, we weren't anybody fans, you know, uh, Green Bay fans. But that wasn't big until the 60s and uh, University of Wisconsin. But we didn't have all the uh, exposure that uh, college sports has today uh, and or professional sports. Back then, you had the radio and you had your newspaper and, uh, and, and, and it wasn't as much of a conversation piece, you know, even at the bar. So uh, when it came down and I got the opportunity to uh, take a look at some colleges, and I always tell people, I said, um, when I had to make a decision of schools that I had to, had an opportunity to go to, one was uh, one was Notre Dame, and probably the best piece of advice that I got was from the Notre Dame recruiter. Ultimately, as I look back on it, it was kind of a really a sales technique, but it worked for me, in which he said that, you know, you're going to get a lot of scholarships from a lot of different schools. And every time you go visit one of those schools, they're going to roll out the red carpet. So by the time you visit five, six, seven or eight or how many, you know, all of a sudden you have to make that choice. Uh, all those experiences kind of fold together and it makes it more difficult. Why don't you just choose three schools that you would like to graduate from, not necessarily play football at, but just to graduate from, because you never know what's going to happen uh, during your career. Um, and so I thought, well, that made just logical sense. Um, and so I cut it down to the University of Wisconsin for for my state college, Boston College, another Catholic school, um, and, uh, and, and Notre Dame. And like I tell people, I said, well, uh, you know, I did what every good Catholic boy was taught to do, and that was go to church <laughs> exactly. and pray for guidance, you know. And then like every good Catholic boy, I did what my mother wanted me to do, and that was go to Notre Dame. <laughs> so, uh, but, um, and that's how I, you know, and that's basically how I got there. But who would know, you know, um, at that time, a change come in, a brand new 
coach from Northwestern University, Tara Parsegian, and uh, all of a sudden he turns a program around that was uh, a lagging uh, through the, the 50s uh, in early part of the 60s, and then bam, by my junior year, I get to play on a team that uh, is uh, crowned a national championship football team. There weren't playoff games as they have them today, so it was kind of a um, you know an inter- a national vote. But uh, but it was a great experience, mm-hmm. and, and because of that success, and because of that success, that's the only thing that really got me recognized. You know, and uh, so I get drafted in the National Football League, as that story goes, by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Not a highly touted draft choice. I was a 417th person picked in the draft. I was a 16th round draft choice. But from my point of view, there were 17 rounds. At least I was not the last guy picked. uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I made the team. I made the team. Four rookies made the team that year and special teams primarily. And so that gave me uh, an opportunity to get a taste of the NFL, but also that was 1968, or the fall of 1968, and it was the height of the war over in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, um, I remember a change in, in, in my career, or an unknown change, and I was at, uh, uh, in training camp, and it was towards the end of training camp, probably right at the end of August, and September, right maybe the first uh, part of September, and Bill, uh, our, our head coach, um, he pulled me aside and said, um, listen, he said, uh, I got this letter in the mail. Uh, we opened it by mistake. Uh, and it was my 1A uh, draft classification uh, and uh, notice. And he said, uh, we think you're good enough to make the team and we'll take care of this for you. Oh, whatever, really? taking, whatever taking care of this meant, meaning in my mind, well, we'll get you in the reserve or the National Guard. Most players, you know, at that time, um, that was an option that was uh, that was viable. At the, uh, and, and so as time went on and time went on, <laughs> and so then the excuses built up uh, of, uh, you know, I'm sorry, the general retired, the congressman got defeated, <laughs> you know, our context isn't working. But it, but, but it was 1968. It was the height of the war. We had most people over in Vietnam at that time, over 500,000 veteran or military personnel. And so the reserves, National Guard were filled and, you know, and they could call whatever shots they wanted to at the time. And it was one of those where I, it just kind of slipped through and uh, my, um, and I got my draft notification. um, And it was, (laughs) I was at, we were getting ready for a game. I think it was 11th game of the season. And then I was sitting in the locker room, and all of a sudden, one of the equipment guys holler, "Hey, Blyer, there's a letter over here for you." And so, I jumped up and walked over to the table and picked it up and opened it up and said, "Greetings. We'd like to inform you that you've been inducted into the armed service of your country." <laughs> to, to report the next morning. Wow. At seven a.m., I said, "You got to be kidding me! Don't you give you a week?" You know. And so, from that point on, my my life was you know, up in a turmoil. There's, you know, it just went, you get, you know, so, um, and, and part of me, and in all honesty, as I look back and reflect on that, you know, of, of that, of, of going into the service was that, you know, it was somewhat of a, you know, a relief, uh, of, of, uh, wanting to live up to one's responsibilities, you know, and why people join the service for one reason or another wasn't popular back at that period of time, but ultimately, my uncles had served. My father hadn't. He had been ill 
But, uh, you know, you wanted to, uh, I, I guess, you know, if other people serve, then why not you as well? And maybe that's mm-hmm. a rationale that you accept that, you know, that, that movement. But then you go through, you know, basic training, advanced infantry training. Right. Uh, like, uh, it was like camp again all over. And then uh, you get your orders. And uh, uh, obviously, uh, you know, my orders went to uh, Vietnam and, and ended up uh, in May of '69 uh, over in Vietnam. Rock, let me ask you real quick: When you decided to go to college, was there any thought that you know at that time, if you went to college, you weren't able to be drafted? Did you think in going to college, was it even a conversation with the family, like, "Hey, we'll at least be able to avoid Vietnam for four years, maybe it'll be over by then"? Was there any sort of you know of that thought process? Uh, yeah, no, no. I you know I would like to think that there was, but there wasn't. You know, at that time, it was just you know you got. Um, you got your student deferment, uh, you know, so for those four years, you get your student deferment. And, you know, and I had, you know, friends that I went to high school with, uh, like, you know, uh, everybody else. Some, uh, you know, um, flunked out of school, dropped out of school, um, went into the service because that was the only option that they had or or, def- or they got drafted and, and, and went. Um, and uh, it did their time uh, with a couple of years. Um, and so at that time, you know, if you got drafted, it was a two year commitment with the six years of reserve uh, thereafter to fulfill your obligation uh, to our country. Uh, and so that, uh, you know, so that was what was taking place. But that was the that, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I really didn't concentrate, nor did we talk about it. You know, it was just kind of there and you wait and see, you know, what had taken place what would take place later on. I mean, I didn't even think about ROTC because that was a commitment. Right. You know, and, uh, um, and, yeah, and it's not that I, I, I did thought about playing professional football, but the, that option, you know, it was kind of there just, you know, whatever, you know, hopefully maybe, you know, that it would take place. So, um, um, I just, went the usual route of everybody else during that period of time and, you know, waited to see what took place thereafter. I'm just curious, you know, you get to basic training and everything. Was there anything at that time that basic training was sort of like football for you? Was it like football camp at all? Was it tougher? Was it harder? <laughs> well, no, it, it was diff. I mean, it wasn't tougher or harder. I mean, it was just different because, um, uh, yeah, because of the drill sergeants, you know, right. because of, but 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 in, but in all honesty, it was kind of the same. You had coaches that yelled at you. You know, you had a responsibility. You had drills you had to do. You know, you had to go to practice, um, uh, whether it be in high school or college. You know, so there was a time factor. So it wasn't foreign. And and and, and, and coming from a playing season, you know, I was in pretty good shape. Um, at that time, uh, compared it to somebody who had not worked out or not done anything or get ready for basic training. So it was, you know, you just, not that I'm saying basic training was a breeze, you know, but you got through it, um, maybe better than some other, uh, Mm -hmm. other young men. Did anybody at basic training recognize you and go, are you Rocky Blyer from the Steelers? <laughs> no, you know, not when, no, no, not when you're the 417th person oh, yeah. picked in the draft. <laughs> I guess that's true. But still, you know, I listen, you played a full season in the NFL. Might have had some kid from Pittsburgh in there who knew everything about the team. So, you know, just uh, on the off chance right. somebody recognized you. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, not really. I mean, all the no. I mean, so it wasn't as if I was a highly touted, you know, player that got drafted. You know, I wasn't as if I was a starter or an All American. You know, from Notre Dame or in the news all the time. You know, so um, uh, eventually, you know, it get it it get around, but but nothing. You know, there was nothing to do about it. You know, so I didn't get any. Sp- special attention right. because of it. You know, so. All right, so six months after you raise your right hand, you end up in South Vietnam. What are you told? <laughs> Where are you going? Sort of what's your mission? What do you know about, uh, you know, leading up to the events getting into Vietnam? Yeah, and nothing, nothing. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know anything about where we're going, what we're going to do except Vietnam and Vietnam and the stories that you saw on the news and the stories you heard from your high school friends who had already served, you know, or um, were still in the service, but, you know, you got a chance to talk to or so on and what their experiences were at that time. Um, and, and, you know, and mostly it was all within your own imagination of what was taking place. So we're flying over to Vietnam. I didn't know what to expect. We flew into um, – Saigon, uh, and you go, oh, okay, fine. You know, is there going to be a firefight uh, on the uh, runway? You know, are they going to bomb us? Are they going to shoot at us? And then we got into buses, and the buses, you know, had barbed wire or barbed wire. They had, like, fencing over the windows so that nobody, obviously, could throw a hand grenade into the window. You're going, oh, man, are they going to shoot you on the way? And So you get to camp. You know, and you unloaded and, you you know, you, you went to your barracks, and, uh, you know, so you had to go through a, 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 a indoctrination right. period of time and uh, get familiar with what then we went through some uh, jungle training while we were there before we got to our unit. And I can remember when I finally got to, to my unit and uh, – um, so we, I, I went from uh, Saigon to Da Nang and uh, up to Chu Lai. And then from Chu Lai, uh, I, they, I went out to uh, my unit that they assigned me to, uh, <laughs> Charlie Company, 4th of the 31st, 196th Light Infantry Brigade, Marical Division. I didn't know any of that stuff or what it meant at that <laughs> time. And so I got there and we landed on LZ West, which was one of the two operating landing zones in which we worked from, as Siberia was the other one. Uh, and my in my company, who had then was pulling perimeter guard um, to uh, protect the um, uh, heavy uh, weapons that were up there, um, had every day. Now I find the routine is that they take sweeps off of that mountain, and go down into uh, into the valley take a sweep and then climb back up that mountain, um, uh, every day. So, and so nobody's there. I'm waiting for them. They kindly come up about five o'clock in the evening. And my first reaction was, holy man. I mean, they, they, they all looked older than they, than they were. They looked, they looked beat, dragged, um, uh, they they had this almost like a thousand yard stare at times, um, and I'm going, oh, what did I get myself into here? And so I met uh, then my platoon 
um, uh, sergeant, and then he has met with the captain. He assigned me to, you know, uh, first uh, squad, uh, and uh, we're in the first platoon. And so um, that was it. Met my squad guys, and then they decided that I was going to hump the M79 um, grenade launcher. Mm-hmm. So that was so they they get okay, fine. You know, that'll be, it'll be a good guy, grenadier. That'll be it. He can carry all those grenades. <laughs> I yeah. didn't know I had to carry the grenades. Holy <laughs> man. So they packed you with 60 grenades, you know. Oh, and God. Back and they were, holy man. It was, well, it was better than either that or humping the uh, M60, uh, which um, I didn't want to do either. So, but anyway, that's, but that's, uh, but that was my first, you know, experience. Um, and it just uh, was, I guess maybe I was the first new guy to come in to the company in three months. Um, and so, uh, um, you know, everybody else was getting ready or after a couple of months to go on R and R. So we'd lose them here and there and then they'd come back. And right. um, so that, uh, that was an experience. You mentioned before that a lot of the buildup in your mind getting there, you know, uh, sort of, allowed your imagination to run away with you about what was really going on there. When you get there and you go out on a couple of patrols and you go through sort of everyday life, did any of that imagination match up with reality or was it just completely different in your eyes? Um, You know, I think at first you're, you're very, you know, you're very leery of, you know, what's taking place or what you're running into, you know? And then, um, so if we're, so how it worked was that you'd spent uh, seven to ten days, maybe to, up on up up on, in, in LZ, and then you'd uh, rotate down into the field, and then you'd be in the field uh, running maneuvers um, for that same period of time. Then you go up to another LZ, you know, and then you just rotate out of the four companies that were uh, um, that were stationed uh, in that area. Uh, and so it kind of became routine, you know, and, and, and you, you keep your eyes open and whatever information you, you received about activity, um, you know, it was, uh, it was okay, fine, uh, clear this, we got to clear that whole area. So the big thing was, the big thing was the villages that were out there, what they tried to do was to bring every villager into a, a, a what we call tin city, but into a protective area, so that anybody that was out in a village, and especially male, you know, from the age of, oh, let's just say ten, you know, to sixty, <laughs> you know, was uh, if you're not in the village, then what are you doing here? And if you're here, and so you're either um, uh, Viet Cong, and or uh, you're with the NVA, you know, other or, or yeah, because if you're with the Arvins, which is the um, uh, South Vietnamese uh, army, then you're not in this area. Right. So, so then that became, you know, the, the then that became the target. And then we'd get um, uh, information down in this area, what has taken place. But, you know, so you would move. So you'd be in the field. You know, you get up in the morning, uh, grab a cup of coffee, uh, you know, put your rut sack together, throw it on your back. You know, now we're humping here and we're humping here until noon. Um, and uh, then uh, we we break for lunch, have another afternoon uh, and then leave from there and set up night uh, uh, 
surroundings uh, later on. And, you know, so that became kind of the routine. And you just uh, listen to what uh, the information was. You know, there could be activity here. There is activity here. And, um, uh, and there was a couple missions that we had taken place that were search and destroy missions. Um, people shouldn't be here. So we go in, if we run into a village or whatever, uh, you know, a couple of, well, then you had to destroy those, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, flesh out the people. If there's anybody there, uh, you know, move them. And um, so those were intense at times um, and you just didn't know what, what was going to take place. So, uh, it, it, you know, and it was just that. And it, and it was, you know, sometimes it got boring and boring and boring and, um you know, then you run into a couple of actions, and uh, but then that was it, um, and they would disappear, and so then you continue on your on your mission. When you say run into action, I mean, how often was this happening? And and you know, you, you know <laughs> it's an interesting thing because I think you know, and maybe within the stories that you have told in the past for those who had served, and I think it's pretty much the same, no matter. What area, whether you're in the Middle East or whether you're in the Far East, um, uh, in, in a conflict situation, is that it's boring. I mean, it's yeah. it's, Groundhog it's boring. It's boring. It's every day, every day, every day. You just got to be, you know, somewhat alert on the on the situation. It's you know, and it's not as if there's action all the time. There's not as if there's a big fight. There's not as if there's a you know a front uh, and or or or, or rear. You're just out there um, doing your search and destroy and or search uh, methods or going through, you know, trying to whatever information came down from Intel um, and what you're kind of looking for. So ultimately for us, unbeknownst to to us as soldiers at the time, was that there was a big uh, military action that was taking place um, and that 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 ultimately led into Hepa Duck Valley, and as I said, and that's where we were. And Hepa Duck was the tin city that we were protecting. And the NVA came down um, in, in in regiments uh, to free the Death Valley area. Uh, and so we were we ultimately were in a um, pincher movement with the Marines who were north of us. They were pushing down the. Uh, uh, the NVA uh, into our area, we're to be a retaining force, um, and uh, as as they came down, so that was during that period of time, and that's where the action really had taken place. So, um, you know, ultimately for us, uh, sister company had been hit; they were in the field uh, by an NV, uh, NVA regiment, uh, so they're in a firefight. We then had to fly out to get them out of the hot spot um, that, you know, that day. So we came in, uh, enemy retreated. We pulled them out, um, carrying what dead and uh, helping what wounded that didn't get out earlier with the helicopters. It was late at night. Then we ran into a quick fire fight and um, ultimately the word was to leave the bodies that we were carrying out. Uh, Let's move out of here before they get our uh, our position and start mortaring us. Um, and so we did. And now two days later, uh, we, we we got reinforced uh, by another company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we were going back 
to retrieve the bodies that we had left behind. That was our quick mission. Um, and in so doing, uh, we were walking on an open rice paddy. My point man, you know, all of a sudden saw movement across the berm. Um, and in his excitement, and, and, and it's just human nature, in his excitement, um, rather than being um, a, a, a veteran, you know, and stopping, taking a knee, assessing the situation, he hollered, gook, gook, shots broke the stillness. They started to retreat. He started to chase him, pulling everybody out in the middle of the rice paddy when a machine gun started to level the area. So bodies were diving left and right to get out of uh, arm's way. I dove into a rice paddy. There was another one below us. Uh, four guys were pinned down out in the open. My responsibility, because I was a grenadier, was to get some firepower on that position. And so, sure. uh, so, it, so that was when I got hit the first time. And then we dropped back and got enough firepower to get the four guys who were pinned down out of there. And, um, and we dropped back, set up another defensive position, rest of the guys out of the field. We lost two guys in the field at that time, another wounded. And uh, they probed our perimeter, got close, uh, hand grenade come flying in. And, and it hit my commanding officer right in the middle of the back. And I was right next to him and it bounced off. And, you know, it's one of those quick reactions, you know, it bounces off, doesn't go off, and it starts rolling towards where you are. So, you know, your reaction is to jump out of the way. And um, and as I did, I was standing on top of it and it blew up through my right foot, knee, and thigh. Thank God it was a cheap grenade. So, um but anyway, so that's and then we were in another firefight uh, that afternoon when a sister platoon finally fought its way down to, to help us out of there and, um, and then pulled us back uh, to safety. And, you know, uh, it went back to a place called Million Dollar Hill and um, it was uh, extracted uh, from that position and then spent the rest of my time in the, in the hospital. That date, August 20th, when you were injured, um, you know, you mentioned that you were going back out to get bodies. Did you know any of the guys or the bodies that you were going to get that day? No, no, I didn't know because okay. it was a, it was a sister company. So we, we didn't, you know, it was just uh, I didn't, you know, yeah, I, you know, hardly knew other guys in, in my company, you know. And so you knew the guys that were in your squad, basically, because that's where you hung out with, you know, uh, getting a couple other guys that. Uh, you uh, you know that you knew from other uh, other squads, but uh, this was a whole different uh, you know company, and so I we had no interaction specifically with that with that company. So yeah, no, I didn't know any of those. Did you lose any guys? Did, were any guys KIA while you were going to get the bodies on August twentieth? I know you said well, somebody was wounded, but did anybody get killed? Uh, yes, yeah, we lost uh, we lost four guys. Okay. I think it was four guys, five guys. At, uh, Got killed uh, that day, and um, yeah, it was a that was a shame. You know, and I know this is a difficult question to answer, but you know, you're sitting there a, a, with a bullet in your leg, and you know, you're missing part of your foot, and you got shrapnel <laughs> everywhere. But yet, you lost four of your buddies. Are, are you more thankful to be alive, or is the loss of those guys sort of weighing on you more at that point in time? No, no, I think, uh, you know, let's be honest, we're, we're human beings, you know, so you think about yourself, you know, you think, sure. okay, yeah. fine, God, you know, here I am, 
Uh, you know, so you hear. Now, the, for me, maybe the good thing was that I didn't see them die. I didn't see them get blown up or shot, you know. Um, it just, it was a report. So-and-so got hit. So-and-so is down. So-and-so is not moving. So-and-so is. Uh, and then ultimately afterwards, uh, when you kind of get all the information together, they said, yeah, you know, we, we lost so-and-so and so-and-so. And we lost four guys. Uh, several got we got, we lost, you know, out of that and being wounded with two thirds of our, our company, um, that day. So, um, uh, it was a, it was a big day. Now you mentioned you went to the hospital and you were in Tokyo, you know, continuing rehabbing and getting well there. How long were you there for? So in Tokyo, I was there in two weeks. I, I, I think it was two weeks, maybe three weeks. I was in Tokyo. Um, so the biggest thing at that time was to get, uh, the wounded personnel out of country because of infection. Um, and, um, so I went, so we, 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 we left the battlefield. I went to an aid station. I got to Da Nang, uh, and I was in Da Nang for about two, three weeks where they assess the, the wounds and the situation, wrap you as you best possibly can, you know, take care of, uh, whatever openings, but they're not going to operate unless it was an emergency. You know, so they ship you out of country into, and so we went to Tokyo. So I got to Tokyo, um, uh, and then you just, you know, you process in, we're in the hospital, um, doctor comes through, assess your wounds, what needs to be done. Uh, and one of the things that I found out later that, um, it, it was a big concern was, uh, they couldn't do any, I had a staph infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my in my leg, and it was moving up, and so they had to stabilize that infection before they could move me, you know, and or if it got worse, uh, amputate um, my leg. So, so anyway, so they didn't tell me that right away until later. Thank God. Right. <laughs> so, so we get through. So we get through that process, and. Um, so that was a, it was an interesting thing because it was a, a, there was a, a good doctor there, Dr. Uh, Leor, uh, who is our, our, our physician. Uh, and, um, and so ultimately after maybe a couple of weeks, you know, I didn't know the extent of the damage that was taking place. Um, and so my question to him was, do, 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 do you think I can play football again? <laughs> you know, wait, what do you think? And his response was, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, you're going to have a normal life. Uh, do the things as normal people. Just don't expect to get back in the grid iron. You, uh, you won't have the strength or the flexibility to do the things that are necessary to be a running back in the NFL. And kind of as my authority figure, it just kind of sucked that hope right out, and you know, uh, about whatever that future might be. But the interesting thing, it, 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 and it's just a little thing, but uh, as the story goes, uh, I got a, two days later, I got a postcard in the mail. A simple postcard had two lines on it. It said this, Rock, the team's not doing well. We need you. Art Rooney, owner of the team. Wow. wow. It's like somebody needed me. Well, they didn't need me. You know, but it was that kind of a graciousness that uh, reached out that kind of changed your attitude that, you know, somebody out there that cares. And, you know, so you, you move that forward. Hey, everybody, just a quick pause from the podcast to give you a word about my friends at My Front Page Story. 
Look, Father's Day is coming up, and if your dad is anything like mine, your dad loves the newspaper. I think everybody's dad loves the newspaper. Well, give him the cover story he deserves for being such an awesome dad at MyFrontPageStory.com. Guys, I did this for my mother on Mother's Day, and I can tell you she was so emotionally moved by what My Front Page Story does. It is the absolute perfect gift for Father's Day as well. Telling your dad you had a story written about him as a gift for Father's Day is pretty much the coolest thing you can tell someone when giving a gift. Watching him read it and trying not to get choked up, just like my mom did, will be even better. What happens is you'll talk to a writer for about 10 minutes about your dad, and they'll write an amazing story about him and send it to you, and he will love it. I guarantee you it is an absolute win of a gift. So instead of going the old route for Father's Day, you know, socks, a tie, a gift card, give him something that he'll actually remember forever and go to MyFrontPageStory.com and be sure to use the promo code HazardGround20. Once again, MyFrontPageStory.com and the promo code HazardGround20 to set up an interview today to tell the story about your dad on Father's Day. MyFrontPageStory.com and the promo code HazardGround20. Now back to this week's episode. I want to ask you, you know, as you're leaving the battlefield, as you're being flown out of Vietnam back to America, you know, to start putting your life back together, is there any sense of guilt or does that come much later? Were you just happy to get the hell out of there and be alive? I mean, kind of take me through the thoughts. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so I can. So here, you know, so here now they're dragging me. Okay, I mean, let's get to the point where I'm. I, I mean, the, <laughs> the sister company comes in, you know, and the first guy that comes to me is a is a is a um, uh, is a is a uh, corporal that I know from that company, and and I know or from the, the platoon. So he comes in. He said, "Oh my God, you all right?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Oh, thank God." He said, "Because we, we got the call that you and Tom, Captain Murphy, who was our captain, um, bought it uh, and had been killed." Uh, so, oh, don't worry. He said, well, I'll get you out of here. He said, you'll be the first guy out of here. Okay. And we'll go. And I said, okay, fine. So he came back. He said, no, Captain Murphy's the first guy. You're going to be the second guy out of here. <laughs> I said, okay, fine. So, and so because of uh, the injuries in both legs, they had to carry me out and they carried me out on a poncho liner. So they've got four guys, you know, they got to carry a quarter, a corner, you know, and then drag you on a poncho liner. Um, just to get you out of here. Now, here's four guys that they, they've been since the break of dawn as well. They've had their own battle to fight through to get to where we are. Um, and so now it's uh, later in the afternoon going into the evening. Now they got to drag 170 pounds. I lost a lot of weight <laughs> of dead meat, you know, through the jungles. And that's not the easiest thing to do. Oh, and they did. And they dragged me and they dragged me and they dragged me and they set me down. You know, guys would pass me. They set me down. And we got to a point where they they were beaten, tired. I mean, honestly, God, they just couldn't. They said, OK, fine. We're going to send uh, we're going to send uh, uh, a stretcher back. You know, don't worry. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll send somebody back. Now, here's an interesting thing, because all of a sudden during that period of time, if ever, and I'm saying this in all honesty, Two black hands reach out of the darkness, scoop me up, and, he, and, 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 and my fellow soldier picks me up and throws me over his shoulder and starts carrying me to the helicopter. And the helicopter, honest God, the helicopter was a long ways away, and, and he would put me down, um, my blood all over him, 
catch his breath, pick me up, and continue on until he got me to the base of the hill. Um, and then he got a stretcher and took me up to the top. But he carried me, you know, and, 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 and you think about things that are happening today um, within um, uh, our, 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 our black communities and right. injustice. When you think about the brotherhood of war, mm -hmm. there is no color barrier. You know, you're just a fellow soldier. Um, and, you know, he was an instrumental. And the thing about it was I didn't know who he was. Didn't know where he came from. Didn't know where he lived. Never saw him since that incident. And you never uh, got his name. Never got his name. Wow. Yeah. And so, but, you know, he, 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 so he gets me to the, you know, to the helicopter. Finally, we get, you know, we get up there. And so, I'm, so a medic comes over. He says, is there anything I can get you? And I said, yeah, give me a shot. Give me something. I, you know, I mean, holy man, we haven't, I, I didn't get anything, you know, through this period of time. Adrenaline was, was working its way off. So he gave me, so he gave me a, so a morphine shot. And I said, well, give me another one. He said, no, I can't do that. He said, because I need to, to have you be awake when they uh, assess what your injuries were. But, you know, so it's, you know, it's those little stories. So you don't, you know, yeah, you don't think about guilt. You don't think about um, until later, you know, until what happens. Or you think yourself is lucky and or you think, well, you know, I'm, you know, you feel, well, that's part of life or war or whatever took place. Um that um, it's, you know, and I can understand, I mean, I can understand where uh, if I'm a leader, you know, within a group, if I'm, you know, a sergeant or if I'm in charge and I lose my group, I lose my people and I'm the only one that lives, you know, um, yeah, I, I can understand that. You know, I can understand that guilt and, you know, that that loss that you should have done something more. And that becomes difficult to to handle at times. OK, I want to fast forward uh, before we get to the football stuff and come back to it, because I'm just I'm curious for those who, you know, are familiar with Rocky Story. And you may know uh, you, like many other Vietnam veterans, had the opportunity to go back to Vietnam 50 years after you were there and, and I've talked to a variety of Vietnam Mets on the podcast and they all get a different experience from this. I'm curious, why did you go back? What were you hoping to accomplish in the trip and, and you know, the experience, what did it mean to you? So uh, the reason I went back wasn't is uh, the only, the only reason I went back was because ESPN had, um, uh, had talked about it. Okay. Um, they thought, you know, actually it was, a, it was, it was a process. It was a 10 year process to be able to do that. And we'd talk about it and then these schedules didn't work out and, you know, and then things slipped. But anyway, so, um, uh, so they said, well, no, I think we, we would like to go back with you and, and, and do that. I mean, it's a part of your story. And, you know, and, and I said, okay, fine. Here's the deal. I mean, here's the deal. I don't know what you are going to expect. I said, because of the fact, he said, um, because of the fact, unlike the majority of returning Vietnam veterans uh, uh, who had to suppress their feelings, who were spat upon, uh, uh, who were looked down upon because uh, at that period of time, you were identified with the conflict, unpopular conflict. So you were unpopular, not that you served your country, but you were unpopular. Um, and, um, and so they had to, 
repress their feelings um, and, and become quiet. And they had nobody to talk to. They had no place to go. The VFWs weren't open to them. The American legions weren't open to them. Um, and uh, they went about their lives as they best possibly could. I said, I come back to a, a quote, a high profile. And so now I become a story. And so over those 40 some years, now 50 years, you know, I've told that story. So I've gone through a catharsis of 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 that period of time. Right. There isn't anything that I hadn't already, you know, come or emotional about. So I said, yeah, so let's go back. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll it'll be fun to kind of um, see what takes place. You know, and they had a couple things that were lined up. Um, an interview with a, a, a an Arvin soldier that was actually there in Hep Duck during the same period of time that I was there. Um, and we found the exact location of uh, the exact spot where we got hit in that rice paddy. So we, we, we went back there. Now, my reaction, and I'm going to tell you this, my reaction wasn't a, was very unexpected on my part. As we're driving from Da Nang to Chu Lai, it's about an hour and a half drive. I'm sitting in an air-conditioned van, and um, and I'm just looking at the scenery. Now, it's a busy, hectic scenery. I mean, <clears throat> there are roadways. There are townships. There are you know buildings going on. There's commerce taking place. Uh, there's motorbikes, cars on the road. I mean, it's kind of like a hustle bustle going from one place to another place. And I'm just, you know, thinking, well, okay, fine, you know, subconsciously. And then we're driving by LZ West. And I said, what's that? And they said, that's LZ West. I said, oh, okay, fine. Uh, Obviously a place where we operated from. And I had taken sweeps out into this area here, uh, which was all rice paddies and jungles. And, you know, a village popped up here and there. So what a change in 50 years. Suppress that feeling, I'm sure, um, until we finally found the spot. We got there and uh, Tom Rinaldi um, were doing the interview and he said, um, so what are you feeling? Out of the blue, this emotion came over me that I couldn't understand nor quickly in my mind know where it came from uh, that came from really the like the soles of my feet up through my body. I could just feel it and just erupted uh, inside of me of, of this emotional reaction. And I didn't know where it was coming from. And that was a frustrating thing. I didn't know where that was coming from. And, and, and so, I, and I almost felt sick inside. It was like flushed my system. And, oh, and I said, I have to go and sit down. And, um, and we did that. And so um, it was, uh, I sat down and bam, I passed out. Um, and so my blood pressure dropped and, you know, and that was the, uh, that was the, the scenario. And then, and, and so ultimately came to you and uh, we went back to Da Nang and, um, um, and I had to go see a doctor and get some IVs and all that kind of stuff. But the, uh, the, um, but the situation was okay. Where and and so subconsciously, so subconsciously, it was all the change. And then it was, and then it was the understanding of well, why, why? I mean, if you think about what had taken place 
over in that conflict, you know, after all these years that, um, you know, 58,000 military personnel died mm. for what? It's still in, and not for what, but still it's, you know, it, it, it's still a communist country. Um, although they love Americans and, you know, and we got great commerce going back and forth. Um, but, but for what reason and for why? And that became the emotional, um, um, that I couldn't come to, to, to terms with, uh, in, in that question. And, 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 and I think that was the, that spurred that, uh, that emotional reaction at the time. And it gave me a sense, maybe it gave me a sense of what it's like to have post-traumatic stress and people who have to live with that military personnel, maybe first responders, you know, who all of a sudden life's going fine. And then bam, you open the door and you step off a cliff, um, in, 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 and it hits you. Um, and so it, that gave me that little sense of people who live with it, uh, for most of their lives or um, have to deal with uh, mental health issues that uh, and that come from experiences uh, like that. So that was my feeling. Yeah, That's where we went back. And, and again, I just – when you talk about it – see, I, I've always thought that about myself. Like one day I, I, there's a part of me that really hopes to be able to go back to Iraq you know, after two deployments there and just kind of walk the same ground again. And when I think about what I would feel, I almost get emotional. I quickly just kind of turn my mind off because so much of you is left out on the battlefield. And, you know, it's a theme we talk about a lot. No matter what you go through in battle, you that person you were before dies. You're never the same person again. Um, And and you're you're completely changed. And, And as you should be, because the experience of combat is unlike anything on earth. And so uh, I, I hear you talk about it, and I I could feel that sort of emotion building in me, wondering if I'll be consumed the same way if I ever get that opportunity. And part of me almost like fears the opportunity because I'm afraid of all those emotions that I'm not really aware of that I'm still having. Right. You know, and so I, you know, so I've also run run into uh, Vietnam veterans, and I, and it's really. And I think that what I'm going to say is that it's really what your experience was during that period of time that you served or were in country. You know, so I have also run back, uh, run into people who really enjoyed going back, you know, going back to Saigon or Da Nang uh, and or wherever they were and uh, seeing the changes and, you know, seeing the ocean and the beaches and, and so on and so on. So a lot of times, and, you know, those who worked uh, in, in the rear and support mechanisms and so on, you know, have a different experience than those that were um, 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 on the front lines, so to speak. Um, and so it's just, uh, so it's, and I'm happy for them. I'm, and I'm not that I'm pointing out what's better or not because everybody served in, at any one time. But sometimes it's just that, that experience and how you deal with with uh, with what you had gone through, do you regret making the trip? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Okay. I mean, I, not at all. I, I, I was happy. I was happy to be able to do that. You know, I was you know, somewhat embarrassing to be on camera and you know and and and, and, and break down like a little kid and cry and uh, and um, and then ultimately faint. I did. I, but the biggest thing was I, I I did tell him. I said, oh, "Okay, fine. It was very nice narrative. Thank you very much." But did you have to say, you know, he was overcome by heat stroke? 
you know, I mean, like heat stroke, that was like, that was like an old guy thing. Oh no, he's so old that heat stroke had taken him down. I mean, couldn't you say emotional? <laughs> so, right. Emotional stress as opposed to heat yeah, stroke. Right. Stress. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, uh, let's kind of get back to, uh, you know, your life after you get home from Vietnam. Uh, again, for those who don't know, immediately you go back to the Steelers. Now you spend what, like basically 18 months on injured reserve uh, before you can get back to playing, right? So what is the – the doctor tells you you're probably not going to play in the NFL. You're not going to be able to play football. Is that something that's well, motivating you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, so what the doctors know. I mean, I always say it, it's not that – you know, but it's a perception about what takes place. So anybody who has been involved in sports, you know, and played, or, or no matter what level, not that it has to be high school or college, you know, but let's just say this, lessons that we learned, bumps and bruises and scrapes that we get playing in the backyard or neighborhood or pickup games, you know, uh, you know, continued. You know, so what do you learn? You learn that, well, you, you know, you, 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 you got an injury. OK, it hurts. Um, you see a doctor. OK, then it heals. And then you got to kind of go through rehab. And, well, then all of a sudden you're back in the backyard again playing. Um, and it's a it's a process. That, so it's a mindset that, that we go through. In this case specifically, you know, I was damaged, but I did arm. I didn't lose a leg, you know, I mean, it still operated, maybe not as efficiently as, as uh, before, but, um, the, the, you know, we've had injuries before. So you overcome that. You have to start doing all the things that are necessary. So the biggest thing was just getting an opportunity and being with an organization like the Steelers. And at that time, um, you know, so they, I came back and in 1970, uh, and tried out and, and it beat me up. I mean, it was uh, two day sessions and I, you know, I got my weight back, but you know, it just, it just, you, you get an injury and, you know, so I was limping through practice, blah, blah, blah. Um, they released me, put me on injured reserve. I had another operation. Um, let me heal, come back the following year and ultimately went through that training camp and, and they put me on the taxi squad. Okay. So, Bought me two years to kind of hang around, two years to be there, um, kind of go through practice, you know. But it was actually two years to see a change or a growth in what you do with that opportunity. And so I come back in 1972. I'm bigger, stronger, faster, and uh, um, and uh, get a chance to play. Fortunately, we got six exhibition games. I get enough time in the exhibition games um, uh, to play. Um, and uh, I'm the leading ground gainer during the exhibition. Not that it means anything except for the fact that I made the team. Never carried the ball thereafter. Played special teams, you know, in that whole season in, in 72. Came back in 73. A little bigger, stronger. Got a chance uh, to, to, to play. I carried the ball once during that season. It was, again, um, special teams. And then 74, I come back. Um which was a big struggle for me to do so in 74 only because, you know, you're, you're just kind of hanging on in 74, the starting running backs are already predetermined backups, predetermined for me to make the team again. I was going to have to fight with every free agent rookie and draft choice. And, uh, almost quit, um, that year and not come back in 74. Um, but I got my arm twisted and I came back and, uh, ended up as a, a leading ground gainer mm -hmm. 
Yeah, <laughs> during the exhibition season. And, and I tell people that only because of the fact that, you know, the reason I was the leading ground gainer because I played more than anybody else. I, I carried the ball more than anybody else because they're trying to cut me or get rid of me for whatever reason. Um, and so all they were providing for me was an opportunity to make this team. So they had to keep me. I was back playing special teams. But things happen. Frankel gets hurt. Backup gets uh, put in at, at, at fullback. Backup gets hurt. I'm the third guy. So I get a chance to play. Franco comes back. Uh, they move me to 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 halfback, uh, and uh, all of a sudden we start to win, uh, and uh, we win the division that year, and uh, we go to the playoffs. We win the playoffs, and we go to the Super Bowl for the first time, and we win the Super Bowl. Uh, and so it's just you know those opportunities that existed and, and, and gave you a chance to to play and fit into uh, you know and fit into an organization. Uh, where they could use your talents. Not that I had great talents, but um, uh, but one that uh, helped uh, Franco become who he is today. I mean, it, it's almost crazy cyclical, but also very roller coaster ish. I mean, it's December 1968. You're on the Steelers. You get drafted, and then over the course of basically six month, six years, and a month, you go from being drafted to Vietnam to injured. Back to the Steelers to the height of the Super Bowl. I mean, that is, you know, that's a that's a crazy ride in a relatively short amount of time. It, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it, it it is when when you, it seemed like an eternity, but but it is when you put it in that in that uh, in that in that context. Um, and you know, and and so I think just you know, I mean, part of that story is not giving up. Part of the story is having a desire, you know, of what you wanted to become, having an opportunity, and then what you do with those opportunities that uh, exist along the way, um, and, uh, and and fitting a need. And I always tell people, I said, the only reason I got a chance to, to, to play or get a chance to start wasn't because of my size and speed, two things I did not possess, but ultimately because of one talent. And I tell younger people this, and he said, we, we, you know, we all have talents of one nature or another. Uh, to be able to be a host on a on a on a podcast or or or, or, or to do sports, and in this case, you know, um, the reason I got a chance to to to, to play was that Chuck Knoll um, asked our backfield coach. He said, "You have a weakness in the backfield. Who is your best blocker?" And he said, "Well, Blyer is." He said, "Well, then start him." So one talent. You know, and the ability to recognize who you had a block and, and wanting to do so. And so um, that became my opportunity to be able to break into the, the backfield. And, and it worked. And, you know, and, and the thing about it was that I wasn't trying to compete with Franco. I, I didn't do that. I knew what my job was and my responsibilities. Um, and sometimes, you know, you get people that uh, think that they're better than they are or should be somebody more than what they do. But actually, it's just contributing to the success of the team because ultimately, ultimately is the success of the team. Winning those Super Bowls and the people I played with allows me to be able to talk to you today about, you know, uh, four Super Bowl champions and, and being a part of a, a great dynasty. Um, and, and, and without those people, uh, that would never have happened. And it's much like being in combat, those people that surround you and take care of you, you know, um, and get you through a tough situation um, becomes um, essential. And it's not necessarily just you and how good you might be or not be, um, but it's all those parts coming together uh, that uh, that uh, sustain a victory no matter what we may do. 
Did any of your teammates ever ask you about Vietnam or was it something that nobody ever bothered to bring up to you? No, not like you know. No, I mean they, they, they not not necessarily. No, uh, I mean we, they, you know, they ask, but it was more tongue in cheek, and you know, I usually had a, you know, some quick comeback, you know, to to talk about it because it's you know it's not that they would understand and not that they really wanted to understand. I think at that time, you know, at the time, it was a part of my life, my experience. They didn't have that same kind of experience. Uh, and, uh, I don't know whether they wanted to, you know, really know, uh, you know, what it was like, you know, so, uh, that would. Rocky, when you see how your fellow Vietnam vets were were treated when they got home and you mentioned some of it before, uh, and you see how veterans who are coming home are treated now, does it bother you on behalf of the guys who you saw get spat upon and, and sort of cursed as baby killers and everything else. Does it bother you at all? No, no, no. I don't think it. No, it, no, it doesn't bother me. I mean, it really, in, in all, I mean, it doesn't bother me except for the fact that we didn't have that um, reaction back then. Um, you know, we, in, um, but I'm glad that we do have that feeling today about our service people, that we respect them for their ability to serve our country and uh, wanting to serve our country and not necessarily the conflict. You know, the conflict that's been going on for, what, 18 years over in the Middle East isn't necessarily a popular, you know, a, a conflict, um, but the soldier is. I mean, the soldier today uh, who has uh, is multiple deployments, you know, back and forth uh, on a professional basis, uh, National Guard as well. How that is uh, that uh, dealing with uh, that transition uh, from uh, having a foot in, in in two spots, one on a home base, secondly uh, uh, um, on a, a military front base, you know. So that becomes um, that becomes very difficult um, to 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 fathom. I always tell I said that you know the biggest thing was the uh, Gulf War uh, going into Kuwait. I said, you know, that 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 saved the American soldier uh, uh, when every night uh, they would come on, you know, um, uh, and talk about what they're going to do during the day. Uh, Colin Powell um, and um, oh, what's the general's name? God, I, I'm sorry. I, I just, uh, you know, they'd come on and say, OK, fine, we're going to do here. We're going to do here. My God, they would do this. And I can remember during a period of time, you know, uh, people would have American flags in their cars and they'd be beeping their horns. And, um, and, and I always wanted to uh, relay it to uh, how the American population uh, perceived war. That's how they perceived war. It was like a John Wayne movie, uh, you know, round up the wagons, you know, and uh, um, and we're going to do this and we're going to kick butt in, you know. And so uh, <laughs> so that's and we got it over with in three weeks. And, hey, that's the way we do it, you know. Uh, and from that point on, people started to think and think, um, you know, the American soldier for their service. Uh, and so it became uh, very important. Then uh, when 9-11 came, you know, that was a tragedy. Um, but again, just all escalated our, our feelings for um, uh, the American soldier and what needed to be done and what happened here on that forefront, and then um, taking it to all these many years later. So, yeah. Can you think of a player who hit you in the NFL, whether in practice or a game, where you said that hurt more than getting shot? 
did, yes. Yes. Robert Brazil. Robert Brazil played uh, linebacker for the Houston Oilers. He was an outside linebacker. It's almost like a stand-up defensive end playing a linebacker. Oh, and he was big. I mean, he was big. It, it, it was big at that time. And, it, you know, like 245 pounds. And he was fast. And, boy, he, uh, yeah. So, over time, we, ended, we had to play him twice a year. And so, he hit me um, numerous times. But there was, you know, one occasion, one game that he hit me um, so hard, he picked me up and drove me out out of bounds, and uh, then pile drive me into the into the ground. Um, and to the extent where I oh, I got up, and I'm thinking, say, if you feel it right away, then you know it's going to hurt. You know, it's going to hurt. <laughs> and and I, so Robert Brazil was the guy that goes, oh man, he almost cut my career short. So often we compare football to the military. Uh, is there a fair comparison between the camaraderie of a military unit and the camaraderie oh, of an NFL team? Oh yeah, very much so. You know, I, I, because it's all you all go through the same. We all go through the same thing. We depend on one another. We have each other's back. You know, on a, 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 a on an athletic team as well as a, a um, as an operational team. Uh, and and, um, and so, so you know, we, we have the same things uh, 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 about. Um, Leaving or deployment, or you know, anyway, it's not necessarily the terminology, you know, that right. that is used in sports, uh, but it's that more sense of a family, you know, that that I got your that you have a responsibility in doing your job. You do your job. Don't try to cover for somebody else, you know. And if we all do our jobs together, you know, we're a better unit than if we, we if we if we don't, or if we're trying to cover a weakness that we may have. Um, the, the the transitions are the same too. Leaving the military um, after a period of time, whether it be after four years or ten years or twenty years, it's a transitional period. Um, and a lot of times, you're, sometimes you're not prepared for that transitional. Uh, and how does that? Uh, and then how does that affect you? So you talk about a player, you know, that's making a team. He's playing, and then all of a sudden he's injured, and he can't play anymore. And now he's, you know, a civilian. Um, and it's like in the military, and you've got plans for 20 years or 30 years or want to make a career, then all of a sudden an injury doesn't allow you to do that. And so now you got to make a transition into a private world. So how do you go through those problems? So, yeah, there's a great parallel between that, uh, that individual camaraderie, you know, experiences that we have. Um, what we want to get accomplished, how do we handle the obstacles that, that are in front of us, um, and uh, how do we just become better human beings in, in, in so doing. So, yeah, there's a, there's, it's just common sense. It's common sense um, and, a, and, a, and a great relationship between the two. I know you're very passionate about veterans' causes now. Uh, who are you working with, and what do you hope to achieve you know, for veterans and, and service members at this point? Uh, yeah, there's a, there, there's, a, there's a Warriors to Citizens is an organization right there in Georgia uh, that I've been with for the last 10 years. And it's a transitional I, 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 and I, they, um, uh, helping helping. Uh, especially um, uh, uh, National Guard, 
uh, and uh, reserve reservists um, on a professional basis. I mean, so statistically, and this is it's a it's a family it's a family um, uh, program of being able to handle uh, moral injuries that take place in today's uh, conflict, um, as well as separations, as well as we were talking about before. If you're in the National Guard, you know, how many deployments have you gone over to the to the Middle East? You know, a lot of times are two, three deployments um, for a period of time. Uh, and in this, and given the communication that we have today, I mean, you can be on an iPhone, you be in Iraq and, you know, and you're talking to your wife and how's the kids or they got this. And so, you know, you're torn as a soldier. In, in both of these worlds that, that go back and forth. So if you look at the statistics and divorce rates that take place and escalate um, because of the number of deployment, uh, you know, it goes off the, off the charts. And then, it, and then the suicide rates that we, 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 we look at uh, overall and it has increased during this pandemic uh, period of time. Um, you know, so it, you know, it, those are, it, it's information that is out there that, that people aren't, Aren't, aren't aware of, uh, and we thank our, our soldiers, but uh, they go through a, 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 a difficult time. So we, we basically, this what we do, we're the citizens that we put on seminars and we put on families. So it's all about families and taking care of the, you know, the kids. A suicide, you know, a suicide affects 100 and, what did I say, 168, 164 people from an immediate from an immediate thing not only the family but friends and then relatives and then the and extended uh and that impact uh that, that that takes place so how do we you know how do we minimize that as best we possibly can and get the family unit together and the divorce rates down so that is a uh, it's a wonderful program that um that uh, that i'm involved in there now the second one is uh, is 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 beating the odds, and it's an educational program that we start in uh, in high school and uh, and and take it over to, um, and that is just overcoming obstacles and having stepping stones of success and learning those stepping stones of success and how important uh, that is. And I've been with them for we started that thirty years ago, um, Rocco Skelzy and, and myself, and so uh, it starts within the the classroom. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and we tell stories about military people and so on along those steps, um, uh, and, and how important it is because a lot of that stuff isn't really talked today in schools on, uh, what you look for from, um, uh, to be a success, having dreams and goals, you know, and having a plan, knowing what your resources are, where are you going to go? Um, and, uh, and you get into trouble or, you know, how do you find an answer? Uh, and move forward. Um, and so those are, you know, those are two big ones. And then always, obviously, no matter where we may go in today's society, there's local chapters of, 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 of veterans here and, uh, um, and, uh, that, uh, do great stuff of, about homeless veterans and, uh, um, and support mechanisms and so on. So, um, yeah, you, you, I, 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 I get in, involved as, is uh is maybe sometimes more than I should but uh but it's such a great cause rock seventy four years young uh what's next for you personally <laughs> that's right well i got um it's, it's i've had, uh, i got a construction company here in uh pittsburgh um and so we've been uh 
uh, in the construction business for the last 15 years. Uh, and uh, we, we started off with an opportunity, being a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business, and we morphed that business and, 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 and built it. And so now we're into the uh, moving into the private sector. Um, and uh, so we do a lot of VA work as well as we've had in the past in, the, in healthcare and um, in the hospitals. And uh, so now we're doing and we're building, um, and so that becomes uh, very exciting. So that that. So that's that's carrying me on, you know. So that that becomes my focus and uh, my passion. And besides, having a chance to talk to people like you, so that's great. Well, Rocky, again, it's an amazing story. Uh, I know maybe some people have heard it before. I hope we got to some detail that maybe people haven't known about or right. heard before. And I just love your candor and your honesty and, and the amount of emotion and passion that you communicate your story with, I think is something that's going to resonate with all of our veterans and all of the, the fans of this show and, and, and listeners yeah. of this show. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hope we enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it. So thank you for what you do as well. Uh, Rocky Blyer. Thank you for being yeah. part of the Hazard Ground Podcast. Okay. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.